Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, there we go. Welcome all. So um, if you could please just first introduce yourselves and um, tell us a little bit about your interests and how you came to how you came together, how you came to study food gentrification, and sort of the genesis of this book. So one of the things that we wanted to be uh, mindful in putting the edited volume together was to feature different types of cities. But at the same time, we also recognized that um, there were um, different aspects of gentrification. And so we ended up putting the volume together in ways that uh, the first half of the book is about how food is used as a tool of gentrification, whether intentionally or not. And then the second um, half of the volume became um, the, 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 uh, the situation where the food was used um, as a framework and place for the activists to push back against gentrification and impact of gentrification. So that was one of the things that we began to see based on the, the proposal for the chapters that we received. And we also wanted to feature uh, scholars of different experiences. So there were some graduate students who I think are almost ready to, uh, to defend. I think one of them just recently defended their um, dissertation and then other scholars who are pretty well established in, in the discipline. And so we wanted to bring all those folks together um, who at that point uh, may have been reading each other's work, but really didn't have a place to collaborate. So those are sort of a few things that I think went into our discussion about how to organize the chapters. And I, yeah, I just remember like getting all the chapter submissions and they were just abstracts. And then Yuki and Josh and I were all on a, a Zoom or a call or whatever it was together. Um, and we were talking about, you know, we were kind of coding them almost like you would code qualitative data of being like, okay, you know, what city is it? Cause we got like, you know, for example, we got several, uh, we got several submissions on LA. We got several submissions on the Bay area. Like some, we got several submissions on New York and we had to ask the New York chapter actually was a product of us saying, okay, you guys all know each other and you're all writing about this in New York and you're all writing about community gardens. You are now one chapter. Can you write it together? Um, so it was, some of it was trying to be inclusive in that way and then also see like, how could we make things fit together? And so coding them by city, coding them by, you know, are they about urban ag or are they about restaurants or are they about grocery stores? Coding them by are they about you know resistance to gentrification from food activists or are they about um, development and food activists kind of being uh, being being affected by the development of the city and the gentrification of the city or are they about food activists playing a role in and kind of inviting in the development and the gentrification of the city and so we were just trying to. Uh, make sure we told different kinds of stories or different parts of what we see as sometimes uh, one whole story uh, from different cities by different scholars um, and at different stages of their career. Because I also, uh, like Yuki was saying, you know, it's really, I think it's really important when you do an edited volume to make sure you have some folks that are in the early stages of their career. Because first of all, like they are doing in some ways the most cutting edge work um, they're often the most embedded in community organizations and the most um, focused on the perspectives of the people that they're working with. 
Um, and also, I just think it's really important to make sure that uh, that we're here, you know, that they're part of the larger conversation, that we're not just hearing from the same people over and over again, that we're constantly figuring out how new folks are driving the conversation forward. Yeah, thank you. Um, Josh, any, any final thoughts on that? No, that was covered really well. Excellent. Um, so something that I noticed wasn't a heavily featured topic in the collection is the idea of food deserts. Um, as I mentioned to you in the email that I sent out, I had I was working at Whole Foods um, in grad school at the time. This is, um, you know, about 10, 11 years ago. And um, I remember and of course, so this is the pre Amazon purchase. And I remember we had a store announcement. Everyone was really excited that they were going to be putting a new store in downtown Detroit. And so I always wonder about those types of um, moves just because, um, you know, of course, you, you hear all the jokes about how expensive Whole Foods is. And so all of the people on the like all the, the employees, you know, we were all concerned. OK, so are people in the area who obviously need a grocery store because it's right in where the store was going it was right in the middle of the food desert. Um, are the people in that area actually going to be able to benefit from that type of store? Um, because, you know, are they going to be priced out of shopping there? And of course, then once there's a Whole Foods, as you all mentioned in the introduction of your book, for example, once that sort of one new hip thing comes in, that starts to draw other other types of gentrifiers and other new residents, um, as you talk about in your book. So um, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. And then also, um, it kind of reminds me of the discussion on of savior entrepreneurs who, you know, often don't see their contribution to gentrification. So I'm curious if you see parallels between between gentrification and um, this particular type of move, um, which John Mackey called conscious capitalism. Um, so, you know, I, either your thoughts on conscious capitalism, your thoughts on the savior entrepreneurs, and if you see any parallels between those types of behaviors when it comes to gentrification and food deserts and, you know, sort of supporting the community in those ways. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack, and I, I hope we have some time here to get into it. So I, I think one of the first things that you know I would note is that in thinking about communities that have low access to a large-scale grocery store or, or a lack of access to healthy and affordable food, usually that's one social condition among many in either a working class or a, a low-income community that experiences, for instance, poor infrastructure, heavy policing, um, not as quality schools, not as quality housing stock. And so there's sort of a, a battery of social problems, if you will, facing communities that also happen to have a lack of access to good food. And what's interesting in thinking about the trajectory of gentrification is that in a lot of these communities, there's a racialized process of dispossession and disinvestment that has created the conditions under which there's low food access. And, and that at some point, those neighborhoods, especially in cities, become attractive for whatever reason. Low, low ground rents, for instance, for artists or other potential newcomers who quote unquote um, discover these neighborhoods. And so there, there's a relationship between those communities that lack food access and then the process of capitalist development within cities. You know, cities need to find neighborhoods to continue to invest capital 
to grow. And food businesses become one of the means through which that happens. And, and at a later stage of gentrification, you might see something like a Whole Foods, but that's going to be likely at a, at, a, at a much later stage. Earlier on might be a cafe or something of that sort. In a company like Whole Foods, they're notorious for actually not citing their grocery stores in communities that have the greatest needs. They're looking for communities that have quote unquote upward mobility and greater capital to spend. And so the, the, the strategy of placing a, a Whole Foods oftentimes is in fact a strategy for gentrification. Um, and it may be couched as, oh, look, we're going to now serve um, a community that doesn't lack access to much food, but you know, usually that's much later on. So yeah, the notion of conscious capitalism, you know, it's just a, a, a way to grow capital, you know, it's a market-based solution to justify itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you here, Allison, do you have thoughts on that as well? I mean, I think we have to ask when we think conscious capitalism, we have to say conscious of what, right? Um, conscious capitalism tends not to acknowledge things like racialized dispossession, uh, and all of the kind of deep history that Josh was going through um, that is implicated in, if not completely responsible for the creation of so-called food deserts. Um, and so this idea that we could have profit, that we could have solutions to racialized dispossession that would also create profit for shareholders is, um, it's just not true, right? The evidence just doesn't bear it out. Um, and so while they may be able to do some things that seem more conscious, like sell more organic food, um, which is great, right? But it's, it's not, um, it's not enough to address the kinds of problems that we're seeing. And, in fact, I think the way that this book really adds to the critique of conscious capitalism that's kind of runs through the, the literature on uh, food justice and alternative food systems more generally is that um, it really adds that not only does it not solve the problem, but in some ways it makes the problem worse, right? Because these conscious capitalist food businesses, whether they're Whole Foods or the kinds of savior entrepreneurs that... Um, that Nina Shanker wrote about in the chapter on Durham. Um, they come into communities that are struggling and then not only do they not address the needs of the people who are already there, right? If you live in a neighborhood with no grocery store because of this long history of racialized dispossession and Whole Foods opens down the block from you, you probably still can't afford to, to shop at Whole Foods, right? Um, so not only does it not solve the problem, but in some ways the unintended or in some or intended consequences of these moves in terms of being lures for new people and other kinds of development actually makes the problem worse because now not only are you in a neighborhood that lacks basic uh, basic services and basic amenities, but you're in a neighborhood that lacks basic services and amenities that you can afford and the rent is going up. Right. So I think one of the things our book really does to extend the discussion is talks about like not only does kind of the good food movement um, 
not address the problems at hand for these communities that are, are struggling with issues of racialized dispossession, with redlining, with poverty more generally, with underemployment, with over-policing, right? The whole, the whole picture, right? But it actually contributes to something that makes these people's lives even harder. Thank you. Yeah. Yuki, did you have thoughts on that? Sure. Um, I think both um, Josh and Ali did an excellent job of sort of highlighting how, what our chap, uh, the editor volume contribute to this conversation. And I think one of the things that we tend to not see as much in gentrification conversation is really who's actually making the call. And so oftentimes we certainly see the most um, I guess embodied um, a representation of gentrification might be individual, you know, renters or new homeowners in the neighborhood, or perhaps new businesses that open up, and uh, we can point a finger at said, you know, you are gentrifying the, the neighborhood, and I think that is certainly something to to discuss. But I also think that we often make it seem as though these individual renters, or, I mean, get residents or the businesses somehow, you know, randomly, coincidentally all showed up in the same part of the town of this particular city. And I think this is where we also need to think about what's enabling um, this kind of investment. And uh, cities or even states, but particularly I think at a local level, cities actually do selectively um, give incentive and even encourage these type of businesses to open rather than, um, you know, so Whole Foods has much easier time negotiating their location, uh, you know, of new retail in some neighborhood than perhaps smaller grocery store. And in all of this, I think what our volume also wanted uh, the readers to think about is to think about what is really actually you know, move making, uh, I guess, the, the, the forces that are enabling um, these capitalistic reinvestment in the city and, um, and who gets to be, you know, at the table for these conversations. So it's not just that the Whole Foods are out of economic range of a lot of the residents uh, in this neighborhood that um, have historically been uh, underinvested, but it's really that they were never really often time given um, opportunity to give their input or if they try to give an input, their voices are not heard. And so even though perhaps some of these, um, you know, savior entrepreneurs or conscious capitalists may feel that they are trying to solve a problem, but oftentimes do I, they're not really asking very important first question what is your what is the problem from your vantage point you know what is the solution that you would like to see in your community and instead they have their own ideas of what the problem is how they're going to solve it um, and oftentimes that also then end up um re, re, uh, reinforcing the existing problem and making it worse yeah that's absolutely a great point um i, I think and you, and you talk i think throughout the book i think there's discussion of um you know, the, the idea that the people who, who live there, the people who are going to be most affected by this um, are not consulted, are not asked, are not um, considered. Um, and um, something that Allison mentioned in her uh, answer just now, she was talking about good food, good food movements, which actually kind of brings me to my next question. Um, and as I had mentioned uh, in the email, this might have felt t- tangential to you, but um, just a little background. So I live in Cincinnati and uh, right around the college, the University of Cincinnati, 
um, when I was growing up in high school and in college, um, it was the, the university was right in the middle of um, a really depressed an economically depressed part of town. And then about 20 years ago, um, they started um, sort of building it up a little bit more. And this is when a lot of, um, you know, one of the things that sort of a, a recurring theme in the book was this notion of authenticity, right? So, um, you know, these restaurants that were um, sort of striving to get at the authentic feel of what foods were happening um, already in the neighborhood, what foods were popular in the neighborhood, what um, culturally, what what foods were culturally um, consumed in that in that neighborhood traditionally. And so we saw a lot of that, um, a lot of sort of new residents coming in and trying to recapture um, these authentic food styles. Um, but now all of that is gone. So these days, what's there now are, um, you know, gastro pubs and um, vegan restaurants and restaurants that sort of cater to um, fad diets or lifestyle eating or even good food movements, that kind of thing. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, um, you know, sort of contrasted to the notion of authenticity. Have you found in your research that the push for authenticity from new residents in gentrifying areas is typically a temporary one? So in other words, do new, quote, authentic restaurants and other eateries lose popularity or change menus once gentrification is more fully established. So like, is that notion of chasing authenticity more about getting people in or is it something that you've seen tends to stick around? Yeah, I can say something about that, but then I want to hand it over to Yuki because she's the, uh, she's the resident urbanist here. Um, so when scholars study gentrification, they often talk about it in stages and that's a little bit false because it's not like things can't go back and forth, but it tends to happen where there are phases of early gentrification, uh, which tends to be like, you know, kind of artists and entrepreneurs and kind of, you know, what, uh, what gets called the creative class, which is a phrase that I hate because lots of kinds of people are creative in very different ways. Um, the idea that some people are creative and some people are not is not my favorite thing, um, but that eventually those people, um, and I'm not totally clear on kind of the order of things, but uh, those folks end up coming into a neighborhood and either signaling to developers that this is a place that's ripe for a large scale capitalist development. And then you have the early gentrifiers being basically pushed out by, um, by large scale capital. Uh, you see a lot more like new build gentrification where everything gets knocked down and there's just these like, you know, apartment buildings that kind of look the same as everything else. And um, the food landscape that you were describing, Aubrey, where like all of a sudden, instead of all these kind of funky and interesting places and people who are trying all kinds of different things, it's like 10 million gastropubs, right? Um and it doesn't, and all of those gastropubs, while they might be chef-driven, have teams of investors behind them and are part of these like big restaurant groups where it's really being driven by large-scale capitalist investment and not necessarily like an individual entrepreneur at the helm. Um, and so it starts to feel a little bit like that same McDonaldized uh, world that in some ways I feel like the move among young folks to get back into cities was like a reaction to the kind of um, 
the McDonaldization of suburbia, right? And so cities were where people were looking for something more authentic and funky and interesting. And capitalism has basically taken that instinct and smoothed it over in a way where now it looks the same, you know, where a way in where downtown, you know, I was in downtown Oklahoma City over the summer and it doesn't look and feel that different from lots of downtowns in the Bay Area. I was literally in a brewery called Social Capital, um, which of course I sent Josh and Yuki pictures of because it's too uh, too good not to share. Um, but this idea that like any of the kind of artistic impulse behind early gentrification, that quest for authenticity, that quest for something that feels kind of vibrant and meaningful, uh, it doesn't survive the influx of large cap scale capitalism that it brings with it. I think that um, I think Ali pointed out a few very um, important issues related to this conversation about authenticity. And I think we need to sort of pause and ask, what is authenticity? You know, authentic to whom? And why, in what way is it valuable? And so I think in many ways, what happens in cities that are going through redevelopment is that the um, conception of authenticity through the eyes of the people with economic resources are the one that become the dominant definition of authenticity, um, not the authentic way of life or particularly food ways of the people who have created a very unique way of um, expressing their culture or perhaps also represent their representing their histories and identity through food. And so I do think that, you know, when we talk about does the sort of a focus on authenticity, authenticity come and go, I think it's more about what version of authenticity you know, is is um, valorized in that particular point in gentrification, um, because I think there are moments, kind of a brief moment, I think as Ali was kind of a, and I think uh, Josh earlier were uh, pointing to the sort of a different stages and pace of gentrification. And I do agree with Ali that it's not a linear progression necessarily, or that um, it all happens in the same stages or same uh, pace. And uh, but I do think that there is a point where the um, the kind of a greediness, I think Sharon Zukin talks about this in, um, in several of her work um, on gentrification about the sort of, a, you know, appeal of greediness. Um, I think Derek Hira also called this sort of, a you know, um, appeal of the kind of uh, the, the authenticity of, of others. But I think uh, oftentimes people who are moving into this neighborhood also don't want it to be too authentic, right? So they want it to be authentic enough to their, their feeling of getting something different or something unique, but also comfortable to their taste. So I think that's oftentimes how businesses kind of calibrate, you know, what was the right balance of, you know, representing symbolically or realistically the authentic culture and history of the place without scaring those new customers away. And I think this happens not just with the new businesses, but also I think the long-term businesses adapting to, to the newcomers. Um, so I, I think it's sort of, again, it's a kind of an interesting negotiation processes. Um, I think realistically, the reason why some of these long-term businesses leave um, is because of the, the changes in rent and, and, so, you know, their inability to, their lack of capacity to compete with other um, restaurateurs that are able to um, 
you know, secure the, the business licenses and be able to uh, keep up with the uh, rising property value in the area. And so I think that's probably what mostly drives who gets to open the business. Um, and I think the consumer's taste would come and go um, constantly, but I don't think that's necessarily the only thing that's driving um, whose business is thriving in a particular neighborhood. So then do you think um, that then related to this notion of authenticity, do you think people chase it? I mean, do you think so once, um, you know, the, the capitalists come in and sort of take over um, and, you know, you can't find those um, sort of, and, and again, of course, we're, we're always using authenticity in quotes because as Yuki pointed out, you know, you know, who is it authentic for? Who decides that, et cetera? Um, so I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you think that that's connected to gentrification? I mean, do you think people chase authenticity? So we can't find it in this neighborhood anymore. So now we're going to go try to find it in this other neighborhood. I mean, do you, do you think that happens? Well, I think there's, there's definitely culinary tourism and it, it can happen within a city or it can among residents that actually live in that city or it can happen with sort of a determination on the part of an individual who's traveling somewhere outside of the city that they live in to experience some kind of culinary delight. And, and I think when we're talking about this notion of authentic, it's, it's not the only thing that people chase. They're, they're, they're taste, they're, they're chasing tastes of various kinds. And, you know, if you think of like the history of the production of taste, you know, at one point, people were chasing high-end French restaurants because that was a way to signal a form of distinction and class above other kinds of eaters who were eating maybe meat and potatoes, right? And so in thinking about the relationship between food and gentrification, in terms of kind of paying attention to what's going on, there's likely going to be new food trends that emerge and people are going to want to visit those parts of a city that are able to meet those evolving tastes that signal some form of distinction. Um, now, whether to the question of it contributing directly to gentrification, you know, it's not the purchase of food per se at a restaurant that's leading to gentrification, you know, it's the increasing ground rents. So if you have enough people frequenting a business that um, maybe is not originally from the neighborhood and, and, you know, a person that owns that land is able to charge more rent to that company versus say a, a local business that um, isn't selling as many food products to incomers, then they're going to get outcompeted. And that process is what can perhaps create gentrification in the food landscape itself. So excluding housing for a moment. And we haven't really talked much about that process, but, but that's also something that happens is, you know, through this kind of culinary tourism, you can see a gentrification of the foodscape, um, which may not have ramifications for the housing market, um, although it may, if for whatever reason, people are also interested in that neighborhood for other kinds of amenities or possibilities that are available there. So, yeah, I'm thinking about this chasing authentic, you know, I'm kind of curious also about chasing all kinds of food trends and what that pretends for um, gentrification of the foodscape itself. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up um, food tourism, actually, because I, I was interested in that as well in terms of 
like cultural or class tourism. Um, so for example, um, these, these notions of like, so in, uh, from the Holy Trinity to microgreens, the author mentions quote, reinterpreted Cajun or Creole dishes, appealing to the foodies in search of the new iteration of authenticity and exoticism. That was on uh, page 119 of the text. Um, so I, I it, it sort of seems like an opportunity to dabble in the lives and cultures of the people being displaced, right, without having to actually navigate those same lived experiences. And so I'm I'm curious uh, what everyone's thoughts are on that sort of that that notion of cultural and class tourism that happens when you know you you so the the food is already there, but then you know a neighborhood starts to be gentrified, and then people are bringing in these you know, sort of quote unquote authentic, but then also reinterpretations, right, of this food that is supposedly authentic to the area. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, what everyone's thoughts are on, you know, s- sort of that notion of cultural or, or class tourism in that way. Um, so I think that was the chapter that I call, um, wrote with uh, Pam Broom on New Orleans. And uh, there's actually a really great book called Authentic New Orleans by Kevin Gotham about the tourism um, uh, industry in New Orleans and how it um, created this notion of authentic New Orleans precisely for tourism. And I think it's it's important for us to recognize that that's not a new thing. Um, It's always been part of the cities, particularly the cities that rely on tourism to define and um, perform authenticity in particular way that appeal to the tourist um, and what they're uh, willing to, I guess, pay money to come see. I think that's that said. I think few things that are problematic with that. Um, oftentimes, the the kind of authentic culture that the places love to to market are not. Um, that are of people who have been marginalized within those places, uh, yet at the same time, uh, so then they are least likely to benefit from the uh, commodification of their authentic culture. This is precisely the case in New Orleans, whether it's music or food or um, not so much architecture maybe, but a lot of the street culture of New Orleans has been um, highly commodified as a way to um, bring tourists in from outside. And so these are really meant to be um, for the outsiders. Yeah, at the same time, I think um, there's been some recognition of that in many of these cities where local activists are trying to um, to take back that narrative and to look for ways to not only economically, but also socially reclaim their own ownership of these cultures. So I think that's something that is happening in many cities, including in New Orleans. Um, but I also think that in terms of the, the tourism, um, authenticity and food, um, I think what uh, Ali mentioned earlier in terms of kind of McDonaldization of flattening of um, the food culture across places, I think this is really kind of an interesting um perhaps unfortunate outcome of, you know, every place having similar kind of twist on whatever local, you know, cuisine, and they all start to look the same. And so then they have to keep looking for ways to perhaps uh, reinvent themselves. And perhaps at some point, authenticity does not really become the most common 
ways to market a place. You know, they could be something else. And so uh, in all of that, though, I think from our vantage point, um, as we were putting the, the editor volume together, um, what happens as a result of that is the loss of uh, the memory of the, the, the people who created a very unique um, culture and history of the place. Um, on on which the you know the the capital reinvestment was um, activated and they are no longer going to be there to to benefit from that. So I think that's really um, is the process. I think that we are problematizing, but I don't think this is not something that is rel you know is brand new. I think it's always been the case in many cities. I think it's just that it's happening in so many different cities as we feature so many smaller towns or cities that are go undergoing gentrification. And so it used to perhaps be, you know, um, New York, New Orleans, and sort of a relatively bigger, older cities, but now those kind of processes are happening at the smaller scale. I think that's really where, um, where we see uh, the difference in, you know, contemporary um, iteration of those trends. Josh or Allison, did either of you have thoughts on that? I think that was great. Um, I also just talked before Yuki, so Josh, if you have anything to add. Yeah, the, the only thing that actually comes to mind are differences in class within a particular ethno-racial group. And the reason that I bring that up, I just read this book by Joseph uh, Iwudzi Jr. called Getting Something to Eat in Jackson. And, and Jackson is... Um, uh, a majority black city. It's one of the, the highest concentrations of African-Americans in the United States. And he tells the story in this book about a couple that owns a barbecue restaurant um, in a part of Jackson that um, is, is working class and, and overwhelmingly um, a black part of the city and talks about the experience of these business owners wanting to create this kind of barbecue that they find um, is, is unique and that they're inspired to make as chefs. And that local residents, local black residents in this neighborhood who primarily are who frequent this place, um, many will come in looking for more typical soul food items. And and that this restaurant will also occasionally get the, the random white person coming from another part of town to, to eat this barbecue. And in the sort of the woodsy gets into the, the challenges that certain um, business owners, food business owners face in who do they um, appeal to and, and how do they survive economically you know, if, if their local community, like the, the, the ethno-racial group that they come from, um, isn't finding what's being created um, to the tastes of that group, you know, do you start to then tailor your cooking to another group? And what he gets into is the complications of um, land rent and the fact that the reason that this barbecue restaurant is in this neighborhood is because they can't afford to be in a wealthier part of town. And so all these things kind of come together in getting me to kind of think about also the, the way in which class refracts through different ethno-racial groups and, and the kind of um, the demographic makeup of neighborhoods within a city. And it, for me, really complicated um, how I thought about who gets to claim authentic and, and, the, and, and where 
do pressures for authenticity come from and how do they abut economic pressures um, and a desire to perhaps do something different than um, what you might be pigeonholed into otherwise. And I just want to add that I learned about that book because I listened to an interview with the author on the New Books Network, uh, the sociology podcast. And so um, I was really excited to listen to the interview with the author. And now Josh is making me want to go back and read the rest of the book. It's a wonderful book. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Um, Okay, so then I guess my last question was uh, seeing patterns of appropriation. So I noticed, um, and and it wasn't really sort of explicitly talked about, um, but, you know, of course, you know, coming at this from an anthropological perspective, um, you know, I'm sort of always focusing on the culture aspect of things. So I I saw a lot of patterns of appropriation. So, for example, several authors mentioned the use of existing urban farms and community gardens that belong to or are shared by established residents as a means of selling the areas to potential new residents. And I can't remember which of you brought that up at the beginning of the interview, um, but I know somebody brought it up at the beginning of the interview. And so one of your authors, Brooke Havlick, discusses the parallels between savior entrepreneurs and colonizers and the, quote, nothing there narrative. And throughout the text, authenticity is written in quotation marks. And we've talked a little bit about um, authenticity and, and, you know, again, who gets to define it, who gets to determine it, who is it for, that kind of thing. Um, but it also sort of points to the uh, intangible, the often intangible means of determining authenticity. So on the one hand, we see the appropriation of community spaces. And then once new residents move in, we see the appropriation of authentic foods and authenticity and authentic culture and things like that. So I'm curious about what your experiences were with this as researchers in your various sites. So one of the things that comes to mind in, in thinking about space um, and, and thinking about who gets to control space in a city and when we're talking about food and food production, you know, these, these are things that are really central to the need to survive for many people that live in cities. And in, in looking at Denver, for example, a case that I'm really familiar with, you know, one of the ways in which communities were able to claim access to space was not so much a claim to kind of their authenticity as a particular group, but more a claim to be engaging in a practice that was socially and politically palatable. And specifically, I'm referring to, to local food and the local phenomena and local food production. And I, and I think that discourse, especially among planners and among uh, what we might call the urban growth machine, has really opened up a lot of space for all kinds of different groups um, uh, across ethno-racial and class spectrums to make claims to the city in various kinds of ways. But what happens is that because of the different class positioning of groups, people have different power to be able to actually claim and then hold on to space. And in the case of Denver, for example, you know, there have been efforts to grow food and then farmers that are on that land can no longer afford to stay on that land and that land gets upscaled 
and sold to developers who then use that branding of local. I talk specifically in the book about a case called Spark Development that was built on what was formerly called Sustainability Park, where there was a bunch of urban agriculture. And, you know, this these groups that were growing food, you know, were, were well-meaning farmers, and many of them were, were working to solve issues of food insecurity and, and try to get food into the mouths of people that needed it most. Um, and ultimately, the development that came instead um, built a giant capital-intensive hydroponic farming operation on top of a James Beard Award-winning chef uh, Japanese restaurant. And and so there's kind of this struggle over land and who gets to claim being local to. And, you know, the question that I ask is, you know, local for who and, and local how? You know, how, how are we getting that food that's local to people? And who gets to actually grow that local food, who has access to the land to do that. Um, I was thinking about um, Ashanti Reese's Black Food Geography. Uh, There are several chapters where she talks about Deanwood neighborhood in DC, where I live now, um, where there is uh, perception by a lot of the other uh, folks uh, outside of the community in DC, and particularly, I think, policymakers of the city, this idea of there's nothing there. Um, I think that is obviously uh, the perspective of of the the folks with certain expectations about what is the appropriate amenity for a community, and then also um, perhaps what counts as the the resources in the community. And I think what's really fascinating in her book is she talks about the strength and um, sort of a communal uh, mechanism that the residents actually developed um, as a way to deal with the fact that certainly they lack um, access to uh, fully stocked grocery store that are not even affordable just in general. There is just really one neighbor, uh, one um, grocery store to this day in that part of town. Um, and uh, um, I think I think this idea of there is nothing there also, you know, coming back to this kind of concept of food desert that I think we're increasingly problematizing in food justice scholarship is this idea that um, that we are labeling places where there is a lot of resources and um, and um, ways of um, making things um, work and people are working to counter those things. And I think it's it just really calling a place food desert or that there was nothing there also not only is inaccurate, but also I think really kind of feeds into this idea of powerless people who just are waiting for help. And I do think that that needs to be countered as well. And I think a lot of activists are very much um, countering that. And I think during the um, the, the the early um, months of the pandemic, I think the the these communities actually had a lot of uh, very visible work uh, among the residents who came together as a mutual aid and uh, um, sort of building on the strength that they had uh, already cultivated over the years. And I think it was really uh, an interesting, I think, moment for the outsider to to recognize that these are not places where people are just um, helplessly waiting for help, but um, have always been actively 
empowering themselves. It's just that the obviously the forces from outside to continuously undermine their effort, um, I think has been so powerful. And so I think that's something that we should also remember uh, in connection to discussion of gentrification to not treat those places as there was nothing there before or that you know people there weren't doing anything um, in that process. Oftentimes those communities do fight back. It's just that their forces are not uh, economically or politically um, influential enough in a local uh, or I guess national um, space to, to push back against uh, investment capital. That was really well done, Yuki. <laughs> um rather than, than follow that directly, I kind of want to push back on something Aubrey asked about earlier, which is that there's not that much written about food deserts in this book. Um, and I think that we are collectively, like not just the three of us, but the authors in this book, we're kind of wary of the, the terminology debate around, you know, the problematic nature of calling somebody else's neighborhood a desert. First of all, deserts are natural. Deserts are teeming with life. Um, but of course, that's not what the metaphor of a food desert is supposed to say. Um, activists often use the phrase food apartheid, which I uh, I respect and like for the, for the stridentness of it um, and for the starkness of it. But I also worry about, you know, the idea of apartheid being so state driven. And while the state is certainly like implicated in all of these deep processes that Josh talked about earlier in terms of how neighborhoods came to look the way they do. Um, I think we're talking about something that is both state enabled and capitalist at the same time. So I'm not... Uh, personally 100% comfortable with the idea of food uh, apartheid either, though I also feel like activists should get to choose what they want to call the situation they find themselves in. Um, my, one of my favorite things ever written about the idea of food deserts is actually in our book. It's in Annalena Hasberg's chapter, and she talks about how food desert as a noun is problematic, but she likes the idea of it as a verb. So these places have been food deserted in that food businesses that were there have either had to shutter because of um, forces like redlining and urban renewal and, you know, and violence, right? Um, there, you know, there were grocery stores in, um, in Tulsa before it was burned to the ground, right? There, you know, so violence is also a reason that, that there have not been community-based um, grocery stores, but then also the capitalist forces of kind of the major chains you know, uh, wanting to be in the suburbs because of square footage and economies of scale and also perceptions of who they want their uh, clientele to be and who they don't want their clientele to be, which is, you know, maybe not explicitly part of how they choose their locations, but I think implicitly is certainly part of the equation. You know, race is part of how we come to value land differently. Um and that matters for food stores and it matters for housing and it matters for all of these other social processes. Um, so this idea that these, these neighborhoods have been food deserted um, really strikes a straight, like really rang a bell with me. I thought it was really, um, you know, and Annalena is such a, such a eloquent writer. Um, and so I really loved that. Um, and I also want to bring up a piece that I don't know if it's out yet, but it's written by Justin Myers um, and 
it, it, who's also one of our chapter authors. He's one of the co-authors in the chapter on um, community gardens in New York City. And he has a piece where he talks about how the the food desert phenomenon, like not the idea that communities lack access to uh, places to buy food, but that um, people have started kind of talking about and problematizing food deserts and that the problem has become defined as the lack of grocery stores and not the kind of broader racialized underdevelopment that is responsible for it. Um, he is theorizing that they that may be itself an outgrowth of gentrification where young uh, early gentrifiers move into these underdeveloped communities and what is problematic for them is the lack of a grocery store, right? And so this is something I experienced in West Oakland, like, when I started doing research there in the early 2000s is that like, yeah, there were people who had lived in that community for a long time that thought that not having a grocery store in their neighborhood was problematic. Like that was absolutely true. But there were also lots of newcomers who came in as interns for places like People's Grocery and City Slicker Farms um, and who were there and also were just kind of young artists who were getting pushed out of San Francisco and living in warehouses and doing all the things that people were doing in Oakland in the early 2000s. Um, and for those folks, the lack of a grocery store was a, was a serious problem. Um, and maybe the over-policing of black and brown people was not as much of a problem for them, um, because that meant they could throw warehouse parties and get away with it because the police were busy with other things. Um, and so I wonder sometimes if gentrification is actually even, and this is what, what Justin is wondering in his piece, if gentrification is actually even more implicated in the problem, problematization of food deserts than we've previously thought, because early gentrifiers were a part of this conversation about why food deserts were a problem and how we have to address them by, you know, having alternative food systems and also grocery stores. Um, from the moment where these conversations became more prominent than other kinds of problems in these neighborhoods. Um, and so having early gentrifiers be parts of those conversations gave it like a level of national prominence uh, that, you know, and in, in this moment in the early 2000s, people weren't talking about defunding the police. People weren't talking about um, other kind of longer term um or maybe not longer term, but other also substantial issues in these communities. Yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, as I ha had mentioned um, to all of you, I am new myself to food studies, and I, I find that an intriguing um, argument that that notion that uh, sort of this this idea. Well, and it, it ties into the savior complex, right? So this notion that um, we have to go in and fix fix these areas, but then of course, <clears throat> a you know the 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 notions about what's quote wrong in an area are not going to be agreed upon right between developers and and current residents um, and so I think that's probably also true as you you're all pointing out um, with that notion of um, food deserts and then why of course that term is problematic and so I appreciate that because um, that's something I hadn't considered myself before so I will be um, looking for that. Um, are the Justin Meyer, is that a, a new book or an article or? It's an article he's working on. And I, um, I know it was going through review at one point and I don't know kind of where it is in that process. 
Um, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you both, both of you bringing that up. Um, do any of you have any final thoughts on the book, on gentrification, on gentr gentrification of foodways, et cetera? We have had a conversation or two uh, over the last year and a half or so, or almost two years now, about the impact of the pandemic on the, um, oh, this kind of a intersection between food and gentrification. And um, it seems that on one hand, I think gentrification has, if anything, accelerated in a lot of places, and particularly uh, in places where uh, maybe there was already a sign of it, but now there's sort of a much larger um, scale of gentrification happening. And it seems that in a lot of those places, um, local resident uh, activists and I guess also developers are really honing in on the role that the food plays in that process. And so I hope that uh, we are hoping to kind of continue this conversation and we're hoping that this edited volume gives uh, folks um, some place to start in and in, in engaging in those conversations. Joshua Allison? I just want to add that we are we're continuing to think through these conversations like first of all as the book you know comes out and people read it there's all kinds of conversations we get into about what is in the book what's not in the book um like including this one um but that we're also working on a chapter uh for a book on radical food geographies that's being uh, put out in the next couple of years and that we're going to have a chance to really, and our, our chapter is going to really focus on how the pandemic has, um, has changed and in some ways amplified, uh, the kinds of dynamics that we were writing about in the book. And so, uh, it'll be a way for us to kind of continue this conversation. Yeah, I guess, you know, the one thing that I would like to end on is the fact that, a lot of people are resisting, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people are resisting gentrification. And we write about that resistance in our book and, you know, the complications of, of organizing against gentrification through food in a context where food is, is valorized and used to actually gentrify cities. And so there's sort of this built in contradiction that a lot of activists face that are doing food justice work um, in particular. But I think that there's this greater recognition among many activists on the left, at least, that there's a need to think much more intersectionally and bridge between different kinds of social movements if we're going to have more equitable cities. That, you know, the fight for food justice is, is also a fight against gentrification, you know, that the fight against gentrification is also a fight against police brutality and over-policing of poor communities and communities of color, you know, that a fight against that is also a fight for economic justice and the elimination of poverty in our cities. And so I think one of the things that a, a focus on food and gentrification offers is the importance of an intersectional analysis and linking food to a whole array of social movements can really build power in ways that can push our local politicians or our state representatives and so on um, to actually begin implementing the more courageous policies that we need and the more courageous actions that we actually need. Things like 
you know, permanent moratoriums on evictions, for example, you know, living wages, um, encouraging cooperative forms of business ownership, you know, the right to a union and so on and so forth. And so for me, um, you know, that's one thing I would like to end on is that there's a lot of resistance to gentrification and that, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that grassroots activists are beginning to make a lot of these connections and finding ways to actually change our cities, perhaps in small ways at first, but um, in ways that lead to greater kind of food justice and, and housing security. Thank you. And thanks all of you for taking your time today to sit with me and talk with me about your book. Um, I will go ahead and close out the interview. And I just want to say thanks all and enjoy your break. Thanks, Aubrey. That's great. Thanks so much for having us. This has been really fun. Thanks, Aubrey.